The Bible reading is from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 28. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Gracious Father, as we uh, come to your word here this morning, uh, we very much pray for your help. Uh, We pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and teach us and give us humble hearts to receive your word. And we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word here today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Friends, we please be seated. Uh, And as you sit... Uh, Do keep your bulletins uh, or your Bibles open to uh, that reading there from Hebrews chapter 9. I actually want to begin this morning by reading to you uh, from 
a little book that I've been reading through at the moment. Uh, it's by the Christian author and counselor, Ed Welch. Uh, he begins this book uh, with this. Uh, we all have voices that tell us we are never enough. If we measure up in school, we don't in sports or attractiveness or anything else. We always have voices around us and in us that assure us we are indeed substandard or average, which feels just as bad. Hiding, insecurity, not comfortable in our own skin, failure, feeling worthless or at least worth less than others, fears of rejection, past regrets that we'd prefer weren't known, all these are features of everyday life. Left to themselves, they grow into shame and self-loathing. Too often we want to hide, or at least hide some part of ourselves. We hide because we are not enough. Hiding, of course, comes with its own problems. Hiding re reduces our close relationships to mere acquaintances. We put on a face so we are never fully known. The result? We become more and more isolated. Relationships can't thrive with such privacy. As if this weren't bad enough, our human relationships reveal details of our relationship with God. If you hide before other people, you will hide before God. If you are not open with God, you are not open with other people. The two go hand in hand. But life goes on and somehow you wake up tomorrow and keep going. Human beings are resilient, at least for a while. God's words in scripture can seem worlds apart from these everyday struggles. We know what God says about murder, lying, and unfaithfulness. Our fragile inner worlds, however, are a different matter. We know that God speaks to our spiritual eyes, which we think of as prayer and Bible reading. But we wonder if we need something else to speak to the hidden parts of our lives. The fears, shame, regret, and failures. Well, again, that's uh, from a little book that I've been reading uh, by Ed Welch, who's a Christian author and counselor. And as he uh, refers here to the regrets and shame that are so much part of our, our everyday human experience, uh, I've been reflecting on that, particularly in light of our current study in the letter to the Hebrews. Because friends, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage uh, that I pray the Lord will use in a very clear and powerful way to show us that in Jesus there really is forgiveness for every shameful thing we've ever done. And therefore, because of Jesus, we no longer need to hide from God or from others. Uh, sometimes people will speak of the, the cross of Jesus as um, being nothing more than a display of God's love for us. Uh, that the whole purpose of the cross is nothing more than uh, just to show us how much God loves us and how valuable we are to him. Or sometimes people will speak of the purpose of the cross as Jesus simply providing an example for us to follow. Uh, an example of self-sacrifice and, and humility. And while both of those things are, are certainly true, I mean, I mean, the cross is an amazing display of God's love. Uh, and we are indeed called to have the, the same kind of humility that Christ exemplified in giving himself up to die. And yet, though those things are absolutely true, they're actually far from describing the primary purpose of why Jesus died on the cross which is good news for you and me, because th those things aren't actually enough. Uh, you and I need more than just a display of love or, or just an example to follow. Uh, what we need more than anything is to actually have something done about our sin. 
because our sin destroys relationships, and most particularly, it destroys our relationship with God. And it fills our lives with things like shame and regret and guilt and failure. And so more than anything, uh, you and I need something to be done about our sin. Uh, Which is why the author of Hebrews, for several chapters now, has been working very hard to open our eyes to see the wonderful truth that Jesus really is our great high priest who offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice to take away our sin. Now, if you were here with us last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, in which the the ministry of Jesus as our high priest was shown to be superior to that of the high priest of the Old Testament. And the point being made was that the priests of the Old Testament merely entered into an earthly tabernacle with the blood of animals, whereas Jesus has entered into the heavenly tabernacle, and, and he's done so not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood. And therefore, Jesus has opened the way for us into the very presence of God. Uh, Because as verse 14 told us, the blood of Jesus doesn't just cleanse us on the outside, but it purifies our very conscience. And so as we turn our attention today to the second half of this chapter, verses 15 to 28, that's still the larger point that's being made. But I think if there's something that's really driving this particular passage that we're looking at here today, uh, it's the unstated question of, but why did Jesus need to die? Uh, And in particular, why this emphasis on blood? Why death and and why blood? Why is this so important? And so friends, as we work through this passage today, those are the kind of questions that you want to keep in mind. What is the death of Jesus really all about? And why is his death not just spoken of as death, but why is the blood of Jesus that which is emphasized? Uh, We pick up with verse 15. Uh, Verse 15, uh, the author there, uh, he he comes back to referring to the new covenant. Remember that it was back in chapter 8, that the new covenant was contrasted with the old covenant. And it was there that the, uh, quote, better promises of the new covenant were emphasized. Uh, Namely, that God would write his law unto our hearts and minds, uh, and that his people would have a personal relationship with him in which they truly know him, and that he would remember their sins no more. And so here now, once again, verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant. We're also told here the purpose of this new covenant. It's so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And then at the end of verse 15, we're told the basis on which this new covenant that provides an eternal inheritance is made. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, so think about the work of a mediator. Right, what does a mediator do? Well, traditionally, right, a mediator stands in between two estranged parties in order to, to bring them together. And, and, that, and that's what Jesus does between us and God. Now, that said, however, we have to be careful here because we and God uh, are not two equal parties. Uh, God is perfectly holy, while we are full of sin and rebellion and thus deserve God's judgment. And so when you you think of Jesus as a mediator, don't think of him just trying to uh, find some common ground between us and God so that we can work things out, because the reality is that there is no common ground between a sinful humanity and a holy God. 
Uh, Rather, the mediating work of Jesus is to bridge that vast gulf that exists between us and God that's due to our sin. And the way that Jesus does that, you see, is through his death. Uh, Specifically, a death that redeems people from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, it's because our sin has separated us from God that the focus of Jesus' mediating work is to redeem us from all of the ways that our sin enslaves us and does that separating work between us and God. That's the meaning of redemption. It's to provide freedom. It's to provide uh, freedom from slavery to sin, the sin that enslaves us and separates us. And there's a sense here in which that redeeming work Jesus does, notice it both reaches back to those who lived under the first covenant before Jesus came, as well as reaching to us today. Meaning that the only reason anyone at any point in history, whether that's Abraham or David or, or the Apostle Paul or you or me, the only reason anyone at any point in history is ever forgiven and made right with God is because of the death of Jesus. Uh, It's the death of Jesus that redeems us from our sin so that we can receive the eternal inheritance that God gives to those whom he calls. Now, this eternal inheritance uh, isn't explicitly defined here, but given what we've already seen in this letter, what we will see particularly when we get to chapter 11, uh, we can think of this eternal inheritance really as every gift and blessing that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's the new heavens, it's the new earth that awaits us. Uh, That heavenly country to to which we really belong, where we'll live as God's people in God's presence forever and rejoice in God forever. And so Christian friends, you have an eternal inheritance that's promised to you. Uh, Jesus died for you to free you from your sin so that you could inherit all the good things that God wants to give to you. Which is why it's really sort of crazy that so many of us uh, would still labor for the things of this world. You know, that we still get so anxious over what we have or don't have in this life. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you have an eternal inheritance that's promised to you. And it's absolutely secure. Uh, God has called you to this. So it's it's secured through his decision. And it's, it's what Jesus has made possible for you through his death. Now, it's at this point that the author here uses an analogy to try and help us see how the death of Jesus relates to us receiving this eternal inheritance. And the analogy he uses is that of a last will and testament. Uh, Look at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, if that analogy uh, seems like a sudden shift in thinking to you, I I think it only seems like that because of our English translations. Because in Greek, the word for covenant and will is the same. In fact, if you have a a Bible open, you, you probably have a footnote telling you exactly that point. It's the same word. It's translated differently in our English Bibles, but it's, it's, it's actually the same Greek word. And so for our author, it's a, it's a logical analogy. Uh, think of a last will and testament, right? You draw up a will, you decide what you're going to leave to your children, to your grandchildren, and so you, you identify the inheritance that you want to leave them. Uh, but that will, of course, doesn't go into effect until you die. A, a death has to occur for that will to become operable. Well, the same is true with the covenant, the will that Jesus mediates to us. It's activated upon his death. 
Now, like all analogies, uh, this analogy has its limitations. I mean, there are all sorts of questions we could kind of trace out and ask that the, uh, the analogy isn't meant to answer. But, but the simple point is clear. Uh, we have an eternal inheritance promised to us that's not dependent on us. Uh, we have no say in the write-up of the will. It's God's sovereign calling and determination. And in order for it to take effect, there needs to be a death, the death of Jesus, which activates our inheritance. I think perhaps of uh, what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, that is by his death, might become rich. That's the point of the analogy. And therefore what that means is that we mustn't think that Jesus' death was optional or that it was merely displaying something to us. No, it was actually achieving for us something remarkable and something which we didn't deserve. Friends, listen, you could have had an eternity defined by your sin. An eternity being enslaved to your sin and to all of the shame and all of the guilt and all of the isolation that comes with it. But instead, by his death, Jesus has given us something far better. He's given us an eternal inheritance in which we get to spend eternity with all of God's people in the glorious presence of our majestic God. That's why Jesus died. So with that point in hand, uh, beginning at verse 18, uh, the author now is going to make the point that actually God has always worked this way. Uh, that it's not just the new covenant that's inaugurated by death, but that this was also true of the first covenant, the old covenant. Uh, it too was inaugurated by death. And in fact, the death and blood of the old covenant was actually pointing us ahead to what Jesus would do and to what Jesus' death and blood would be about. And so we're reminded here of the centrality of blood under the old covenant that almost everything had to be purified with blood. So for example, when the law was given, uh, it was accompanied by blood. Look at verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Uh, the events described there, they come from Exodus 24. Uh, God had, had given his people the law, he'd given them the Ten Commandments. The people in response said that they uh, committed themselves to God's covenant. And then the way that that covenant was sealed and put into effect was through the sprinkling of blood. So let me just read you the fuller account of that in Exodus 24 so you can get a sense of, of, of exactly what's going on there. This is Exodus 24 beginning at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Because, you know, there are many events in the Bible that I read about, and I think as I read them, I would love to have been there for that. Like the crossing of the Red Sea. That would have been amazing to have been there to see the waters do what they did. Uh, Or you think of the the walls falling down to Jericho, those trumpets blowing. That would have been a great scene to be part of. Or even to be part of that, the the battle there between David and Goliath as David is representing the nation and winning the victory for them. That would have been a great place to be. When I read Exodus 24, that is not a place that I want to be in the Old Testament. It's a gruesome scene. It's filled with blood. Blood covering the altar, blood covering the book, blood covering the people. They're all dripping with blood. It's gruesome. And so you think about it, how could you not have left that ceremony there in Exodus 24 without the profound understanding that this covenant thing is a matter of life and death? And the same is true when it came to the tabernacle. Blood was everywhere. Coming back to to Hebrews 9, verse 21. And in the same way, Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Uh, The the tabernacle was, of course, the the physical place in uh, which so much of the covenant relationship between God and his people was to be lived out. And and when you read about it, the design, and you read about the intricacy of it, it's it's beautiful in its description. You get get all the tapestries, you got the, the golden coverings, you have the furniture, and yet on its inauguration day, all of it would have been dripping with blood. And why? Because before any of it could be used... It had to be ceremonially cleansed with blood. And until it was, it was unfit for use in the tent of God. Blood was required. Indeed, says our author in verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay, so right there, you see, that's the point. All the blood is about forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without blood. Uh, All the blood and sacrifices of the old covenant were about the forgiveness of sins, and they were pointing us to Jesus and his blood so that we could understand that when the blood of Jesus was spilt on the cross, the purpose of it was for for the forgiveness of sins. Now, why not just use the word death? Right? Why use the word blood? Well, the reason is because blood specifically points us to sacrifice. Right? It's, not, it's not just that death is needed, but it's the specific offering of a sacrifice that's tied to God's covenant commands. Thus, verse 20 speaks of it as the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Okay, so blood is about covenant sacrifices. And not only that, but again, blood also just graphically displays both life and death. Leviticus 17.11, the life is in the blood. And listen, you don't have to be around blood a lot to understand that. We're not a very blood-conscious culture. 
But you don't have to be around blood to understand what's going on here. I mean, this passage may seem very foreign to us, but we all know the importance of blood. If you lose too much blood, you're going to die. And so blood graphically captures both the reality of life and death. And the reason it's tied to the forgiveness of sins is because sin, you see, destroys life and brings death. Think back to Genesis 3. Death is the result of God's judgment against our sin. And so if a just and holy God is going to forgive us of our sin, there must be some sort of substitutionary death. And and that's the basis of the clear principle there in verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again, our sin deserves God's judgment, which ultimately is death. And so if we're to be forgiven of our sin, there must be a death that takes our place and specifically dies for us. And therefore, what all of the the blood of animals in the Old Testament is pointing us to is Jesus. All of the, the blood and animal sacrifices are pointing us to the blood of Jesus as a sacrifice for us, dying in our place for our sin, taking God's judgment for us, so that we can be forgiven of our sin and receive God's eternal inheritance. And that's exactly the connection the author here makes. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, these these rites of blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Uh, Remember that the copies of the heavenly things being referred to here are uh, the earthly tabernacle and the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which were patterned uh, off of the heavenly realities that were then fulfilled in Jesus. And so the point here is to come back to Uh, Once again, as we've seen over and over, the superiority of Jesus' priestly work and and the superiority of Jesus' blood and sacrifice compared to the old. That Jesus, our high priest, has gone into heaven itself with his blood as the means which prepares the way for us to enter into the presence of God. And so, friends, if we're we're to truly grasp the great forgiveness that we have because of Jesus, we need to understand exactly what Jesus has done in relation to our sin. The shedding of Jesus' blood is for the forgiveness of sins. Similarly, look at the end of verse 26. Jesus has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' death was a a sacrificial death, and through it, he he put away sin. He's he's removed sin from us completely. Uh, He's exiled sin from our lives. The guilt of our sin no longer sticks to our lives. He's, He's put it away, it's gone. Verse 28, Jesus has, he bore the sins of many. Uh, That's the language of substitution. And it's basically a quote from from that great chapter of the Bible, Isaiah 53, defining for us what the cross of Jesus is all about. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus has done. Our sin deserved death. But Jesus bore our sin and thus died for us so that God's judgment against our sin could be removed and we could be forgiven. And therefore, you see, Jesus has gone into heaven, not not to purify heaven, right? Heaven doesn't need to be purified. But he's gone into heaven to prepare the way through his blood for sinners like us to enter heaven. And thus we're given this wonderful description in verse 24 of him standing before the presence of God, literally standing before the face of God, representing us. He's there on our behalf. So that one day, undeserving though we are, we too will stand in that heavenly throne room of God and enjoy the eternal inheritance that Jesus, our high priest, has secured for us. And friends, this is something we're, we're to be eagerly looking forward to. Right, look at verse 28. Uh, one of the points emphasized in these closing verses is that Jesus' sacrifice, uh, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, was entirely sufficient, and thus it was a one-time sacrifice that doesn't need to be repeated. Uh, so verse 26 tells us that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Uh, that is, this age we live in, which is the end of the ages of God's redemptive work in history. Uh, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Uh, There are actually three references here to the appearance of Jesus. Uh, Verse 26 He appeared in the past to put away our sin through his death on the cross. Uh, Verse 25, he's now appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. And then verse 28, he will appear again in order to save us and bring us home to God. And what I didn't know uh, before I was preparing to preach on this passage today was that this appearance language actually goes back to the Old Testament sacrifices and priests and specifically to the Day of Atonement. Which, which is that one day a year that the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And so the high priest would go in to appear before God and he'd go in with the blood of the sacrifice that was needed to make atonement for the people's sins. And while he was in there representing them before the presence of God, the people stood outside eagerly waiting for his return. Because they knew that when he returned, that that was the realization of their salvation, that their sin had been atoned for. Well, friends, again, Jesus is the superior high priest who's appeared once in this world to put away our sin through his death for us. And he now appears in the presence of God on our behalf on the basis of his blood sacrifice for us. And at some point in the future, he will depart that heavenly sanctuary to return and gather those who are eagerly waiting for his appearance so that we can finally and fully enjoy the salvation he's won for us. And so I guess the question is, are you eagerly waiting for his return? And you know what it's like to eagerly wait for something? 
You're excited for something that's coming in the future. You, you eagerly wait for it to come. Are you eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, we, we tried to just walk through this passage this morning. It's a, it's a kind of a detailed passage with many ins and outs. Let me try to finish up, though, by, by giving you a few points of application. Just a, a few brief points of application as we finish this morning. Uh, I think one way to uh, apply the marvelous truth of this passage is to spend some time meditating on the costliness of the sacrifice which has secured for us an eternal inheritance. I mean, surely one of the things that would have impressed itself upon the people of the Old Covenant was just how costly the forgiveness of their sins really was, that it required the life of another to die for them. And so then as we turn our attention to the New Covenant, I mean, how much more so is that true with Jesus and his life given for us? And so, yes, we, we want to think about all the wonderful blessings that we have in Jesus. But, friends, we should also be mindful of the great cost that was required to enjoy those blessings. Uh, the cost was the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Peter meditates on this very thing in 1 Peter 1. We were ransomed not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, we, we should daily give thanks for that precious blood. If, if you really want to truly honor God and appreciate God and worship God for what he's done for you, then you'll need to meditate on what it cost for you to be forgiven. A second point of application that we can draw from this passage, I think, is this. Uh, what we understand about the meaning of Jesus' death will ultimately define and shape our whole life. Uh, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is all about removing our sin from us so that we can be heirs of God's eternal inheritance. So that we're, we're no longer running and hiding from God, but we're living in God's presence forever. And so Jesus has put away our sin. He has borne our sin. His blood is what makes it possible for us to be forgiven of our sin. And so it's with his blood that he prepares heaven for us. Uh, it's with his blood that he stands before the face of God to represent us before God. And not because he needs to beg God the Father to receive us and love us, uh, but because God's justice can only be satisfied by his sacrificial blood. And so the only way to experience the love and joy and acceptance of the Father is through the blood of Jesus. I noted at the beginning of the sermon that sometimes people try to uh, uh, redefine the cross in alternative ways. Because, I mean, let's be honest, right? This is a hard passage, especially for modern ears, right? All this language of blood uh, and sacrifice and God being the one who requires these things in order to satisfy his justice. I mean, this, this can be jarring to modern ears. And, and so people, in, in their uneasiness with blood and sacrifice, they look sometimes for alternative ways to define the cross. 
And probably the most common reinterpretations today are that the cross is merely a display of God's love, that that, that display then is meant to simply stir in us a sense that God really does love us and value us, and or that the cross is merely an example of the kind of self-denying life that we should live. And again, it's it's not that either of those are wrong. It's just that they don't tell the whole story. Nor do they tell the main point of the story. The main point of the story that Hebrews 9 helps us to see is that Jesus' death is a sin-bearing, sacrificial death that removes God's judgment from us so that we can be welcomed into God's presence for eternity. And friends, that's exactly what you and I need. You and I have real shame and real guilt that needs to be dealt with, and you know it. Our sin really is as bad as we feel it deep down inside when we're being honest with ourselves. I mean, the very fact that the Old Testament literally flowed with a river of sacrificial blood, that blood was everywhere all the time, that constant presence of blood because of my sin would have made it so tangibly clear just how terrible sin is. And friends, there's nothing we can do about it on our own. No one can wash away their own shame and guilt. You can try to hide it, but you can't cleanse yourself. God must do it. And he has through the blood of his son. And all the blood of all those animals, a life for a life, was a means to help you see what God has done for you in Jesus. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His life for your own. His blood rather than yours to bring you to God. Only his blood can remove from you your shame and guilt. And so you see, what you believe about the cross and about what the death of Jesus is all about, it will shape your entire life and will define the kind of relationship that you have with God. Because if you understand and believe what Hebrews 9 is proclaiming to you, then your whole life will be constrained by wonder and gratitude for what God has done for you on the cross. And then everything in your life will flow out of that. Here's another way you might apply this. Let me make this point very specific to our church gatherings. Uh, In terms of application, let what we've seen here this morning about the blood of Jesus Deepen your appreciation for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. In the way that the author of Hebrews here quotes Moses in verse 20, uh, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. We we hear there, of course, an echo of Jesus' words as, as Jesus gathered with his disciples for that final meal before he went to his sacrificial death on the cross. As Jesus celebrated that last supper and instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so you see, Jesus has given this celebration of the Lord's Supper so that we can have our hearts regularly shaped by the reality of what he's done for us. And so every time you come forward then to participate here at the Lord's table, 
uh, set your mind on these truths about the blood and cross of Jesus and ask God to impress them even more upon your soul. Uh, Here's one final point of application. We'll close with this. Uh, So again, we've been focusing this morning on on the death of Jesus trying to think through questions of why did Jesus die, why was death necessary, why the emphasis on blood. Uh, We've seen that uh, his death was necessary to inaugurate and activate the new covenant, uh, how his sacrificial blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But one of the the additional points that's emphasized here about the death of Jesus, uh, again, is that it's a one-time death. Uh, Verse 25, Jesus' death isn't like the sacrifices of the old covenant that needed to be repeatedly made. Uh, Otherwise, verse 26, he'd just be repeatedly crucified over and over again forever. Uh, But as it is, uh, verse 26, uh, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, so do you hear the application there? Do you hear the, the application that the writer of Hebrews is, is, is inserting within, within those verses? Uh, Jesus only needed to die once. His one-time sacrifice was that sufficient to deal with every sin ever committed, and so he only needed to die once. But then you see the writer of Hebrews takes that language and he applies it to us. Uh, in effect, saying, and do you see that you too will only die once. You will die. Your life will come to an end. And when you do, you will face the judgment of God. There will be no second chances after you die. You have this life. He's saying you have this life alone to put all of your hope and all of your faith in Jesus' sacrifice for you. There will be no other sacrifice offered. Jesus' is the once for all sacrifice and his sacrifice will cover all of your sin. But you must trust him now. Don't delay. That's what he's saying to them. Don't wait. Don't, Don't try to hold out for some better offer. The cross of Jesus is your only life and hope. Nothing else will suffice when you face the judgment of God. Dear friend, would you put your trust in Jesus' sacrifice today? Uh, Don't think that you can put this off. Uh, You must understand that you and I are not guaranteed another minute of life. And when death comes, there will be no other opportunity. The opportunity will be gone. Jesus offers himself to you as your sin bearer. Will you put your trust in him today? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for any here this morning who have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord, would you give them faith today? And would you open their eyes and their heart to the good news of what you have done in Christ? 
Would you allow them, Lord, to know the freedom of having been forgiven? The joy of knowing that we don't have to run and hide from you, but that because Jesus is there on our behalf in your presence, we can draw near to you. Lord, what a joy that is. We thank you for that gift. And Lord Jesus, we are eagerly awaiting your return. We want to be even more eager than we are. Would you make us more eager? Would you set our eyes and our hope on you? Lord, to be heirs of your eternal inheritance. Uh, we look forward to that. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for calling us to share in that inheritance. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for the costliness of your sacrifice, for your life that you gave for us. May all the glory go to you. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.